1: Thank you, JJ, for that introduction. And I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. Our listening audience is growing literally daily, and we are now in 46 different countries. A few new ones that we have listeners in that I'd like to throw out a special welcome are Iran, Uganda, Belize, Norway, Rwanda, Senegal, Ireland, Burundi, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Pakistan, New Zealand, and Saudi Arabia. So these are all countries that have just come on board to listen to this broadcast in the last uh, couple weeks. I appreciate each one of you. And I appreciate it when you leave your comments, when you leave your reviews. It's just incredible to connect with people from all over the world and know that everybody no matter where they are from need to hear the message of hope which is this show never ever give up hope as long as we are alive there is hope with me today from new zealand excuse me is wolfgang wolf He is a freelance copywriter and co-founder of Ogilvy and Mather Direct. He was their creative director, and he later founded his own agency. Then a terrible thing happened. In 1990, he suffered a major stroke. Now, this stroke should have killed him, but he not only survived it, he surprised his doctors at his tenacity and his healing and his ability to do things that they said he would never ever be able to do. Since that time, he has founded a registered charity, got a bachelor's degree majoring in counseling, and he's also a guest lecturer. He has authored a book entitled How to Survive After a Stroke. Now, this is not a book of rehabilitation techniques. Or medical advice, but rather it gives invaluable support by sharing stories of many people about isolation, loneliness, stigma, fear, disability, and pain. It is a book that addresses coping skills to move past these negatives. Welcome Wolfgang.
2: Hi, how are you?
1: I am good, Wolfgang, and you are coming to us from New Zealand. Now, what is your weather like there today?
2: Well, it's quite nice, actually. It's getting warm now. We are going into, at the moment, it's the end of spring, and we're obviously going into summer, and it turns quite nice, actually.
1: That's interesting. We're just going into our winter.
2: Yeah, I know it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sure you would prefer to be here.
1: Now, how warm does it get there in New Zealand in the summer?
2: Well, I think it's a bit moderate. It's about maybe 28. But sometimes a few days it gets warmer. But because we're an island, there's always a bit wind.
1: Oh, okay. And I
2: think that cools it down a bit. Right. So it's quite pleasant.
1: So it's actually quite quite a mild um summer then. It's not really very hot like it is in some places of the world. I wasn't aware of that.
2: No, I'll be get the old day where it goes over 30, but uh, generally I would say late twenties.
1: Okay. All right. Well so happy summer to you, <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> which is coming. Wolfgang, could you tell our listeners what your life was like? Because just reading your bio and what you were able to accomplish after your stroke made me realize that you must have been quite an incredible, tenacious individual before the stroke. So what was your life like? What, what, what were you doing uh, for work, etc.? So could you tell us what it was like before you had your stroke?
2: Yeah, well, um, if I start really early, I was born in East Germany, and my parents had to flee East Germany, and so I grew up in a refugee camp in West Germany until I was six, and then after that we moved to a suburb. It's like what you call the projects in the States. Okay. I mean, and that was not very good either. I like mean, the
1: ghetto, uh, you mean? Like the ghetto?
2: Well, not quite as bad, but there was still crime and, you know. Okay. P- people beating up their wives and making people being drunk and all that. Okay and so i got out of that and i studied and i i was actually quite good at what i was doing and but of course uh i wanted adventure in my life and germany was getting a bit crowded so i went i was actually going to australia but i Went to the pub in New Zealand, I'm still here. So then I was here and I worked also. I went to Los Angeles and worked there for six months. But it was in the 80s and it was difficult to get a green card because there was a very anti immigrant sentiment there at the time so I went back to New Zealand and started the business and that uh, was a very small agency I had only about four people employed but I made sure that they all uh, got for example more money than they asked for and I suppose that's Uh, because uh, where I come from, really. So, for me, it was not making more and more money for myself, but I also wanted to have happy people around me. So, that was also important. But, of course, I worked very hard and I had the stroke. no? No one was by, really. And I was only 39 at the time.
1: Okay. And did, where did it happen? How did it happen?
2: Well, I was uh, at work, actually, and um, I suddenly I was, uh, I was on the phone to a client, and suddenly my Head started wobbling. I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know what. And it felt like uh, someone picking me up by the brain and shaking me.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: And, And I yelled out, I'm dying, I'm dying. My office door was open. So I yelled to the secretary to get an ambulance. And that was basically it. And the ambulance came, and obviously I had a stroke. They couldn't get me out of the building in a stretcher. And I was sitting in one, or they set me in one of those office chairs with rollers, and they rolled me in the lift and then in the ambulance. And yeah, it was totally uh, shut down everything. I had a tracheotomy. They cut the hole in your throat and put the tube down because you can't breathe right,
0: anymore.
1: Right,
2: right. Yeah, so it was my bad. Now was four and a half months in hospital.
1: Now, were you conscious at this time when this happened?
2: Well, the doctor said uh, medically I was conscious, but There were many things that were told me afterwards. My wife told me things, and uh, that means I wasn't that conscious, really, that I had a memory. I was awake in the moment and answered back, but I wouldn't say I was conscious.
1: Okay. Like you were aware but not aware of what was going on.
2: But, yeah, it was like I was in that moment talking back to people, but I didn't, I was not able to put the moment together into a story.
1: And then, so we, I, go ahead.
2: Sorry. Yeah, I did basically didn't know, but the overall picture was what happened.
1: And you were in the hospital for four and a half months. Now, what, what was going on when you were in the hospital that long? Were they trying to, to do physiotherapy to help you to walk, or, or what was happening there?
2: Well, first I had the operation with a tracheotomy, to me, and then um, I still was very weak, so I was in a separate room, and I had... They get straight, that's when they put uh, the food right through the tube in your nose. Know, you know, it's not exactly MasterChef quality. No,
1: I guess not.
2: And so I was in there for a while and they started a physio. So they tried to get there out of bed very early. But, of course, uh, for me, that stage was only, they, they put me in a chair that was maybe two meters from the bed. They strapped me in so I couldn't fall out. And they, they let me sit there for an hour and then back to bed. So that was the beginning of physiotherapy. And basically, physiotherapy is to get the body moving again.
1: Right, right.
2: And from the lying a long time, I had a, a DBT, I had two, actually, and pulmonary embolisms. That's when the blood clot travels. In my case, Boston Lake. That's what you also get on long long flights for example when they plug, because they ask you always to walk around on a plane. Okay. So so you don't get blood clots. Right. And if a blood clot lodges and it goes up in your body and it goes to the left it's hard to take it. But goes to the right. It's in the lungs of pulmonary embolism, and, of course, it can go to the brain, and then we have a stroke. So... Yeah, sorry. Sorry. No, I that's okay. Two, go ahead. I had two pulmonary embolisms, and they did an angiogram where they put a small camera into your body to find out what it was and they saw they found it was a pulmonary embolism and then they put what you in the States call a drain filter. Uh, there's a filter that stops blood clots from getting to the brain. Wow, and they,
1: that's amazing. They,
2: and they put that there's only a little cut in the leg and they put uh, they thing in there, they filled it and we have a major vein in our body, vein of cover, and they put in there and they supposed to stop blood clots from going any
1: further. The reason I find that so amazing is my husband had a stroke in his 40s and a blood clot traveled to his brain and solidified there and has caused uh, complete disability in some areas. So it's so interesting when you said that I totally related that um, you know that they could put a filter in there to prevent that. That's That's just amazing and Thank God for that, my goodness. That probably saved you from even more of a disability, correct? Yeah, probably.
2: Well, I was only the ace person that has got that. In really? At the time. There were more cases in the States. But in New Zealand, there were only eight. And I still got in there. I mean, they can never take it out.
1: And how long ago was that?
2: That was in 1990. My so, goodness, yes. Yeah.
1: So you're in the hospital. You're going through physiotherapy. What's happening with your thought life? What are you? Are you living in fear? Are you living in a place of, I'm not going to stay here, I'm going to improve? Like, what, what were you going through emotionally?
2: Well, what you just said, I'm not going to say that triggered something because after I was in the single room, I came to a ward with eight beds in And after a I mean, been was serious. I was conscious but I was still not exactly knowing everything that was going on and after a few days I noticed that many of the other people, they had just gone, they had disappeared and I was wondering why that was and then I figured out It was a war where people were all dying or they were sent home to die. You know, they all had cancer or some neurologic condition. So they were only in there overnight or for a day or two. So that's why I thought, oh, that's not me. I'm gonna get out of here. It was good incentive,
1: no kidding <laughs> This is not where you want to spend the rest of your life,
2: certainly not
1: okay so when when how long were you in there? Did you say four and a half months? yeah, and were you walking or able to use a walker when you left?
2: uh I could, yeah, um but very slow, and I was always frightened of falling down. You know, and then uh, nowadays I'm using a wheelchair, and I actually just wrote a blog about that uh, because I was at a function uh, like a cocktail evening, and because I was standing, and I'm quite tall, I looked to the other side of the room and saw some people I wanted to talk to. So I shoveled over with my walker. By the time I was over there, they were gone. So, and that's basically, uh, that's the reason why I now use wheelchair. Because that means I'm fast to get over there. Okay. <laughs> I I just found that I missed out on social contact, and I think the social contact is the most important part of rehabilitation.
1: Which concept did you say that was? I missed that.
2: Uh See, I think if you ask people about rehabilitation, they always think about the biological, the medical, physical part of it. Okay, okay. But I actually think it's only the first part of it. Then you go into the physical and the psychological and then the social. And the social part, essentially, means going out there and reaching out to people. You now, because many people uh, have a stroke, they come at home and they make their home, their comfort zone. Right. So they don't leave the home, and they think their rehabilitation is finished. But it's not. I think the social part is important.
1: Well, that's very obvious. And the fact that you want to reach out to others, which we're going to be talking about here in in a little bit, and even writing your book and some of the other things that you have accomplished since your stroke shows that it wasn't going to keep you down. And your attitude is what has gotten you through. And I'm sure you are very acutely aware of that.
2: Oh, yeah, but honestly, I think uh, whatever someone has in terms of disability, you can't change that. I mean, I don't think uh, the degree of injury or disability is uh, determinant how well some feels. It's because someone can... I have a really bad injury and take it easy and someone else has a very large injury and takes it really hard. You know, so it depends more how we react to the injury we've got.
1: How you relate to it? Is that what you said?
2: How you react.
1: How you react, yes. And that's attitude. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I'm sure that you had lots of moments which which you address in your book of of maybe not having such a good attitude, <laughs> but working through it, right?
2: But, yeah, you know, the, I think the fact that I spent a few months in the hospital that gave me a lot of time to realize that I'm actually... Quite lucky that I survived. It. Yes, and, and I think all strong survivors should look at it that way—that they are very really lucky to be still around.
1: Absolutely, and that's where we count our blessings. That's where we, we, you know, have gratitude for what we do have, not for what we have lost. And that is that is an ongoing attitude from so many people that I interview is that's why they never gave up hope, because they're always hoping for improvement, hoping for something better and not just hoping, but doing something about it and taking those steps that are necessary to move forward instead of becoming dormant and sitting in your chair and doing nothing, which Obviously, you said you were not going to do. So I applaud you for that.
2: I'm saying you. Huh? Well, yeah. I think it's the only way to go. Really, you have. Uh, you can decide whether you stay at home and be miserable, mm-hmm. lose lose contact with friends and everything. Are you actually making an effort to go out there?
1: Now, did you have to learn how to speak again, or was that taken from you?
2: Yeah. I mean, you still can hear it that I have a speech impediment, but in my case, it's uh, because I'm on the right side of my body. I'm partly paralyzed. Okay. I'm a speaker. And that means my vocal cords, of course on the side are be like, which means that I have to press more air through to make a sound.
1: Wow, that is amazing that um you have been able to to come this far now. Did you have family support that were helping you, or did you have family that um didn't help you like where where did you stand with that
2: I had my wife and she was really good because I think uh, what you need at the time uh, when you come out of hospital I mean that's the second shock but what you need then is very much someone who can honestly tell you what you're doing wrong Mirroring your behavior. Mm. See, I, for example, I have what they call lability. That's a psychological, emotional instability. That means I can laugh. You probably have seen it with people who've had a stroke. They, they cry a lot. Mm. Yeah. So this what this, but it can also go the other way, laughing. And I was one day watching something on television and I cracked up laughing and my wife said me, No, that's not that funny really. (laughs) And so That's very important, I think, that someone else tells you what you're actually doing because you're not aware of what's normal. You only, even of things that go on around you, it's only perception. That's very subjective, how you see things.
1: That's right, that's right. Now, one of the experiences that you address in, I, I believe, in your book is the fear and being uncomfortable around disability. Did you, you were probably the recipient of that, right? Where you had people who maybe felt too sorry for you or people who didn't know how to act around you or talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Well, I I think that's uh Probably because we as a society we are not used to talk about negative things. Now we are not talking about this. I mean, it's called life insurance, not death insurance. Right. And we generally we think that's terrible. I mean, we are just not used to talking about disability people are very friendly they meet well but they get all flustered and they make mistakes and then of course the other thing with people you know friends so some of those stay away because it gets Very difficult to do even going out to a restaurant. Mm -hmm. You have to know where you go, you have to know they have the toilets, not downstairs or upstairs. Right, right. So, everything you have to plan. If I go out, I know exactly where I'm going, how get there, because I don't drive any longer. So, I know I get a car, a taxi there. So, I'm, you know, I'm managing quite right, but yeah, there are a lot of people that are uncomfortable around disability.
1: And so, you lose friends.
2: You definitely do. And
1: That's, no. That's yeah, really sorry. sad. That's very, very sad.
2: Well, everyone will tell you, they they all lay friends, lose friends.
1: And it's because people just, it makes them uncomfortable or, well, any number of reasons, I'm but, sure.
2: Yeah, I think one is obviously uncomfortable, the other thing is, is uh, simply too difficult, you know. You can't find someone who said a slogan and say, oh, let's go down to the pub or to, right,
1: you know, right.
2: have a beer. No, you have to call them in advance and they have to call the pub and see that they are stairs, you know, all that.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: it's a major logistic undertaking. And people lead too busy lives to do that,
1: and so how have you coped with that like do you um Do you have a circle of friends with you now that you know that they will do anything and everything they can to help you and and to enjoy your company?
2: but first of all, I don't need any help really I mean okay. I'm, Okay. You know, I'm quite lucky that respect that I can do things for myself. I have uh, two days a week. I have a uh, housekeeper coming in, and she does food preparation for me, and does washing and cleaning, and. So the other days, I'm I'm fine. I like cooking. I like... Oh, you know, good. Company. Good. I'm busy, you know, writing my blog and, you know, I'm still writing a lot. So I'm quite lucky. I'm not, I would never say that you can do anything about the disability itself or that there. I know the secret, how to, not at all, but as I said before, you can choose how you react to it. So what you've got is what you've got. That doesn't change, but what you still can do, that changes with your attitude.
1: Right, absolutely. That that's what it comes down to every single time is attitude. Now in your book you speak to you have several stories in there of other people, is that correct? Yeah. Now have they all had similar experiences or very different than your own? Well,
2: but what, what's similar with everyone is that most people don't know what's going on at the time. And then, of course, uh, they very slowly, it crystallizes that they have lost their life, their previous life, and it's very hard to get over that because most people make the mistake that they want to get their previous life back Mm. But the idea is really to do some kind of a stock take and see what you soon can do. And then but whatever you soon can do, build a new life. Forget the old one because you won't get the old one back. Let's go
1: And when you build the new life, there is satisfaction in that, isn't there?
2: Of course, and I actually think it's quite good because there are a lot of things that you already know. You're like a child who has to learn new things. You don't necessarily have to because you already know the mistakes someone can make. So... There are also many people out there who feel strongly, say their life changed to the better. Or they are better birds because of it.
1: Do you feel that you have become more empathetic towards your fellow man as a result of this?
2: Well, probably, yeah. I, but I also think it's uh you know, because the way I uh, was brought up, uh, you know, in the refugee camp, I, I will never forget where it
1: come from. Right, right. That would make a big impact on you, your whole life, absolutely. Now, what is um. What is computers against isolation? You mentioned that um, that is something that you're involved with now.
2: Yeah, um it was back in uh, 2000. that was just I had uh published my book of few years before that, and then I thought, okay, what's next? So and it basically came out of the fact that um there's less contact to the outside world, less communication with people, more isolation. So I thought in new century, everyone should have access to a computer. And so what I do now is I buy access computers and give them uh, to disabled people all over the world. Oh, really?
1: Wonderful.
2: And the way it works in terms of logistics is that I don't deal with the disabled people themselves. I deal with social workers or their community support or field officers. And they email me and then I basically, I buy it and the company sends it straight to them. So I don't don't hold any computers or anything.
1: Right, right. And that's basically, to, if it's computers against isolation, it's to be able to give people the opportunity to connect with the rest of the world who are disabled. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we have a school children, we have 15-year-old children that go to school with autism. It can be all kinds of disability. So there are people with autism or MS. We have grandmothers that maybe talk to grandchildren in San Francisco. And we have children here that use the computer for studying.
1: And is, did you say that this is international then?
2: No. Uh we can uh, according to our trustee only operate in New Zealand.
1: Oh I but, see, uh, okay.
2: But of course they can use the computer for whatever
1: purpose. Of course, of course. And what else are you involved with now, Wolfgang?
2: Uh, I'm mainly writing my blog. And then I'm counseling people who've had a disability because it's very obvious in all cases, really, that it affects the family, not only the person who has had the accident, a right. stroke. So, and I found it quite interesting when I talk to people who had a stroke, for example, they say, "Oh, I'm not nuts. I don't need the car. Do you understand nuts?" That means I'm not crazy. I don't need a counselor. And I say to them, it's not about being crazy, but there are tensions in the relationship often. So I have done a program which is only about five, six hours where I explained it also to the partner. Why, what's happening, why's happening? Mm. For example, we go out to a cafe and have a coffee because I want to see whether the able-bodied partner is actually bothering buying the coffee for the disabled partner or whether the disabled partners do Because I think help is not always good. It's very fine line between being helping and condescending. Yes, but it's good to support someone with this disability, letting them know that they have support there, and but at the same time. Encouraging them to do things for themselves, because if someone is only helped all the time, they get lazy.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I suppose it's uh, true with uh, a partner or possibly a parent to their children, and you you see that, and and you can address that. As far as instead of being condescending, which I think would be uh, a real negative, but to be helpful and supportive and encouraging that they can do it themselves. Is this what you guess lecture about?
2: Well, I guess it's about basic. it's have uh, two different classes I talk to. One is uh, nursing students okay, and there's more about the brain and sensory functions and the other is a social practice that's about social science or they have one paper that's called Disability Mental Health and there we talk about things like uh, what's the difference between helping and supporting
1: Right, that's what I was just or, asking, yes.
2: Or take my you know, and think like it. But the position of the disabled person in society how the disabled person sees themselves in the group in a family setting, or in a wider. Community, like church groups, or what?
1: So it's a, it's it's support groups, basically, right, of one form or another.
2: Yeah, but again, uh, it depends very much on the person who has had the strong and that they, they go out there and seek that contact. Because the support group doesn't come to them.
1: Good point. Yes. Now you said that you you address nursing students. Is this to help them to understand how to help the individual that is in that position? I yeah. mean, something that they would not learn in school. More the emotional side.
2: Exactly. Yeah. See, the problem is, I think. Uh, that way often in a hospital setting the nurses are quite busy and even so they just want to help there's a whole system that basically works in the other way that they do so they are in a way in between on one hand they want to help the patients on their land. They have to satisfy the system. And basically, I talk to the nurses to give them more of the human perspective of the stroke survival.
1: Okay, yes, yes
2: because they only hear about the medical things, how they make sure that all the steps are there, but many of those steps are we there. So the hospital gets funding from the government. Uh. They stay cladded. The uh, In a way, the patient is sort of, well, you could say, uh, are space, and they can't the can't see the patients are space. Nurses see the patients as people, but
1: yes, yeah. And what do you what do you blog about? What what um, types of uh, blog posts do you do you have on your blog, and do you offer any assistance or help to people through that as well?
2: I must say, uh, to talk about the help. yeah, if someone, uh, for example, emails me, I always make a to Friday back and we can even Skype, no problem. Um, but I found that very often uh, it's uh, pretty much things like that that's pretty much a much bigger exercise for many people and I try not to do that,
1: uh. that
2: much. so I basically say that's the content of it and that's important to everyone and anyone can talk to me about it so in the subjects I write about I have written just recently one uh, exactly about what I talked about before why would anyone in their right mind change from the walker to the wheelchair
1: <laughs>
2: and there I obviously talk about missing out on the soul contact and i Wrote about the ability that laughing thing, you know. Like 24 years ago, I started. Today, I'm still laughing.
1: That's wonderful, and laughter is such a such a healer. That's wonderful to hear.
2: Yeah, I don't complain.
1: No, I. That's very obvious. That's very obvious, Wolfgang, and. You are an inspiration, and to many people, I am sure, who are listening, because these are things that affect us. As you said, it affects everybody, not just the stroke victim, per se, but it affects the family, and it affects people around you, even strangers, you know, when, they, when you have an encounter. It, um, your life has changed. And you have a new life and you are going forward with a new life rather than looking back. I love that what you said. Rather than trying to get the old life back, it's, it's what can you do with a new life and how can that life become better. And your book, again, I want to reiterate what you said earlier. And that is, it's not just stories around the medical aspects and the, the disability itself. But it's the stories around the emotions that you and those around you are affected by, which are isolation and loneliness and the stigmas attached to disabilities and the fears and the disability itself, the pain. And I just feel that that is such an urgent and needed message to give to people who have been in this position where because your life has changed that has also changed of those around you and so i encourage people today and i i'll ask you for your call to action but i'll give my own call here as well and that is to buy your book and to gain a better understanding just as when you are lecturing to the nurses or you know the students to get a better understanding of what you are going through, what the person with the disability is going through and how you can encourage and support and learn because it is definitely a learning process. And so I applaud you Wolfgang and I thank you for what you shared today. And your story is incredible of what you have survived and overcome. And I, again, I applaud you. So what is your call to action to um, to finalize this today?
2: Well, first of all, thank you very much, Carol Frank.
1: You're very welcome.
2: Uh, yeah, call tricks uh, Basically, I'm saying, yeah, anyone can uh, email me. There are websites. There's a website for the strong mentor full Computers Against Isolation at my blog. And there are also my email addresses. It's easy to find out because it's on the blog. So, yeah, people can always uh, write to me and ask questions or what. That's fine.
1: Okay. Well, your all your contact information will also be on on the web page, you know that I make up for you after the um, after the interview today. So your book will be there, your interview will be there, and all your contact information will be there. And so people will be able to to connect with you in any way that they would like. Right.
2: All right, thank you.
1: you thank you very much Wolfgang, it has been indeed a pleasure and I thank you for being so patient with me because we've had to postpone this a couple times due to circumstances that came up, so you've been very gracious and patient and I appreciate that.
2: That's right. Okay. Thank, so thank
1: you very much. You're very welcome Wolfgang and we hope to hear good things from you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.